This is a sound of political rallies in Singapore in 2015. They had the biggest rallies ever, right? It's like a social occasion, going out with the family to a public rally. It was quite fun. This election is really only about one thing, the post-COVID-19 recovery of Singapore. COVID doesn't have race, language or religion. We are in the thick of battle and there's still a long road ahead of us. This is what political campaigning sounded like last month. Parties were were quite restricted in what physical campaigning they could do. So a lot of this ended up going online. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly and today on The Detail, with our own delayed election day looming, we find out what it's like to vote in a pandemic. A general election like no other. More than 190 candidates from 11 political parties and one independent all vying for a seat in Singapore's 14th parliament. This year's vote is seen as a watershed election. The polls take place during what's been called the crisis of a generation. The COVID-19 pandemic has left jobs and livelihoods at stake. And safe distancing has also meant this has been Singapore's first ever digital election. It's July the 10th, election day in Singapore. Two and a half million voters are going to the polls. That's a record turnout at 96%, where voting is mandatory. Every voter was given a two-hour slot that they were asked to come and cast their vote within. It was to try and avoid there being you know, huge long lines at polling stations. The elderly were encouraged to come in the morning. And so they had the 8 a.m. to 12 p.m. That was their uh, preferred time band. Then everyone else was like from 12 to 6, right? So the healthy, normal populations. And then if you needed special assistance, a person with disabilities or special needs, or maybe you were not very healthy, uh, you were allowed to come during 7 to 8. That's New Zealander Jarman Jamison. He's a journalist with online news company Rice Media. I'm also talking to John Geddy, Reuters bureau chief in Singapore. And then safety measures such as temperature screening at the polling stations. Everyone has to wear a mask here by law. So you had to kind of go to the polling station, then take your identification card, lower your mask to show the person who you were, then put it back up. Then you were given rubber gloves for handling the ballot papers. You would put on some disposable gloves. You would go up to the self-inking pen. You would stamp the card and you would uh, be out already. The thing is that actually about halfway through, they kind of were like, hey, this plastic glove thing is taking a bit long. Uh, We're going to have to get rid of the plastic gloves. And so they just kind of uh, doubled down on the hand sanitizer. Hmm. So in the end, right, it was kind of like a normal uh, election polling thing, except that, you know, people were not coming uh, willy-nilly anytime they want. There were a variety of kind of precautions taken. All the polling agents as well were in like your full post-apocalyptic PPE as well. And, you know, this it didn't all play out as planned on the day. There were hiccups along the way. One of the issues they had was that They had given all all the people these time slots, but then there was a very busy period in the morning where where elderly voters were supposed to go to the polling stations. And it could have been caused by a number of reasons. I think some of the elderly voters, they had challenges with putting on these gloves and taking off these gloves. That slowed down the whole process, then other voters arrived. At 11am, long queues were seen at various polling stations, with some voters waiting up to one hour. So by the early afternoon, Um, We were already seeing very, very, very long lines at polling stations, you know, people waiting, you know, up to an hour to cast their vote. In response, the elections department issued a statement apologising to voters, adding that it had done away with using disposable gloves as it contributed to longer than usual waiting times.
this was a problem for the authorities because they'd been trying to avoid there being these large gatherings. And actually what happened was that the voting was supposed to end at 8 p.m. and they actually extended the voting hours for an additional two hours to ensure that they could get everyone through. Some of the opposition parties had, had said that they, you know, they weren't happy with this when it, the decision was made, but the decision was made to ensure that you know, everyone could cast their vote. So that was certainly two of the things that kind of went a little bit awry on the day. But in the end, they must have said, well, this was a success because nobody got sick and everyone voted. And I suppose we need to point out here that voting is compulsory in Singapore. Everybody has to vote. Yeah, I mean, there's no there's no evidence that I can point to that shows that there was kind of cases um, related to election day. So, yes, I suppose if you look at it from that perspective, you, you could say, yes, the vote was held without it creating the kind of safety issues that certainly rights groups and, and some opposition parties had flagged. That said, the election didn't actually have to be held until April 2021. So there was a question when the vote was called. My fellow Singaporeans, good afternoon. Earlier today, I saw President Halima Yaakob to advise her to dissolve parliament and issue the writ of election. As to whether it was necessary to have it, you know, now or whether it might have been safer to hold it at a slightly later date. The government made the decision at the time that, you know, we just don't know where this is going. We've got it relatively under control. As I say, they just come out of, of a lockdown period. There are a large number of cases in Singapore, but the, a lot of these cases are in this very sad situation in these migrant dormitories. Mm. So a lot of the voting public are, are not actually all that impacted by you know, the, the virus. There's not a great deal in people in Singapore outside of those dormitories. Because so, obviously the migrant population, they don't vote. Exactly. Mm. Yes. I mean, it's only it's only citizens voting that had no real bearing on when the, the vote was held. And uh, most of those dormitories at the time were under a, a quarantine regime. So the authorities saw there were little risk of, of that creating broader uh, issues within the, you know, the, the, the voting public. Yeah. So that's the crazy thing, right? Like uh, the, the, the confirmation bias that you really want to make when you see this, right, is like, wow, you know, a good three billion people uh, in Singapore went out to cast their votes. Uh, and then suddenly, here we are a few weeks later, it doesn't appear we've had a massive surge in cases. So I guess masks and safe distancing work. Who knew? So voting day went off with, well, a couple of hitches. But it was a day that will be remembered for more than being a pandemic election. It shook up Singapore's democracy, shook up the ruling PAP or People's Action Party. For the first time, the main opposition, the Workers' Party, got official recognition as the opposition. We'll talk more about that, but let's back up to the nine days of campaigning before Election Day. With gatherings restricted to five people, rallies are off. That leaves door knocking. The politicians will go around and you know how most Singaporeans, they live in uh, public housing estates. They will go around and they will knock on the doors of people and say, hello, I am the MP, I am here. And then the people will go, oh, fantastic, the MP is here. And then they will wave, they will take some nice pictures and then the MP will move on. But it was door knocking with like, you know, PPE. The MP comes like uh, usually maybe wearing uh, a full mask, 
like a, a plastic face shield. They, they will also wear gloves or they will have like someone on hand, like a PA, to just like sanitize their hands also. They will not shake hands or anything like that. They would walk up and they would do a bit of a, it's a Chinese bow, right? So they put their hand over their fist and then they uh, basically bow a little bit. And this became, you know, a bit of a, uh, an election PAP greeting or COVID-19 Singapore greeting because it was, uh, of course, uh, respectful and like a handshake, but <laughs> no longer need to touch hands already. And walkabout. Walkabout. So in Singapore, right, uh, of course, you might know hawker centers and community sort of establishments are very important, which are essentially like these big food centers. So the MPs or the opposition politicians, the candidates, I should say, uh, actually walk around the hawker center and they walk up to people and say like, hello, uh, would you like a, a brochure? So people will be like, oh, yes, yeah, nice to meet you. And then they will they'll move on. But again, so these things were allowed with certain safe distancing. The rest of the campaigning goes online. But working together, we will defeat the virus and keep the everyone safe. The Party has fielded 21 candidates in this general election, all committed to ensuring that Singapore rises like a phoenix from COVID's ashes. This election is about choosing the right person to lead us out of this terrible storm. In the end, the whole election was very much, I would say, mirrored online, right? So, like, there was a huge surge in traffic towards opposition pages, as if that was mimicking the rallies that previously were held by the opposition. But they got far more free airtime, right, in terms of the social media pages. Their videos went more viral, that kind of thing. So the whole campaigning thing went online very naturally almost. And that brought out some interesting characters. Take the 80-year-old leader of one of the opposition parties, nicknamed Hype Beast. All of you are hyper beasts, like me, right? Okay, my my online friend had pardon, pardon my French. You see, I'm still not so familiar, but you must excuse me. Okay, now they have taught me a new word, woke, and I know what woke means. It means I was retired, and now I am woke. And he gained a lot of following with like Gen Z and millennials because he would kind of parrot these words uh, that, you know, like, you know, let's say Zoomers or, or millennials they like, right? So he started saying things like, hello to all my hypebeast friends. When I saw his first post, I wanted him to be my grandfather. But by the 80th time he called himself a hypebeast, just felt like he was trying a bit too hard. He would be very in touch with, I would say, you almost call it like the young kids lingo, right? Um, and this was very much part of his IG strategy to gain followers. Um, and gain a lot of, I would say, clout. This is the kind of thing that if he had to do a rally, it'd be very, very different. Um, it wouldn't have those kind of playful antics. But they really took hold, and he got like you know his Instagram followers, you know, from like 10k to 100k kind of kind of thing in in a few weeks. But 100,000 followers on Instagram didn't translate to winning a seat. Walk with us for a better tomorrow. For country, for people, you deserve better. Make your vote count. For the Workers' Party. Lots of social media then. And was it then that the opposition parties really gained momentum, particularly the Workers' Party? Yeah, so uh, basically Workers' Party had this amazing PR video where they had you know, a, a slew of candidates. And this was distributed on Instagram and Facebook. And it was just that very nice, inspirational kind of video. And this came out as soon as the election was announced. People were stunned. The video was short didn't have any dialogue and featured a popular politician making a long-awaited comeback. Those alone raised all the online hype that the Workers' Party could have hoped for. (laughs) 
Those are the celebrations of opposition parties after the election results were in. The ruling People's Action Party won 61% of the vote, one of its lowest ever. But more significant was the announcement that the Workers' Party leader, Pritam Singh, was officially given the title of Leader of the Opposition. It's becoming more diverse, more open, and people used to think we didn't have a serious opposition, and I think now they have a better idea of like what Workers' Party can do and also the kind of opposition that we can have in Singapore. The incumbents, uh, they got 61% of the vote, but that was you know, very near a record low from 2011, and the opposition won these 10 out of 93 seats, which is unprecedented. What that was down to... And whether it was impacted by the vote, it, it's quite hard to unpack that, really. I mean, you know, I guess we're talking in hypotheticals. If, if, the, if the opposition had been able to do more campaigning on the ground, um, some of the opposition rallies in the past are often some of the most lively events. So it is possible that they were robbed of the opportunity to have some of those bigger rallies. I suppose that said, what was un unusual about this election was that it drove everything online. And I think probably more than we've ever seen before in Singapore, there was more um, kind of online commentary, online discussion uh, about um, uh, political issues. You could look at it the other side and say, well, by pushing everything online, you had a younger, more kind of social media savvy voting public that were able to engage in the election in ways that they hadn't done before. And was that potentially to benefit the opposition? I think if you look at some of the surveys that the main opposition party, the one that won those 10 seats, the Workers' Party, they tend to be quite popular among the the, the younger voters. It's, it's really hard though, because we are talking in hypotheticals. We don't really know whether they would have had that plus, you know, the ability to hold their usual big rallies. And would that have allowed them to have even more impact? I mean, it, it's, it's challenging to really unpack all that. How much did the pandemic, though, bury some of those other big issues? I mean, you wrote about gay rights. The other big issues, I guess, include immigration, yeah, I mean, so so immigration was a very big issue um, and, and, and is a big issue in Singapore, um, has been historically. And I think it always kind of comes to the fore, um, especially at a point like, like now when the economy is facing its deepest ever recession and there's lots of worries about jobs. And I think pretty much all the parties, all the opposition parties probably take a slightly stronger line on immigration policies, uh, maybe, than the, than the incumbents. What is interesting and, and hard to kind of convey when you're covering an election like this, because when we look at when we look from the outside and you compare the result to results elsewhere in other elections, and you think that, you know, the ruling party, you know, won a landslide, you know, it won, it won 83 out of 93 seats, you know, they'd be cheering in other parts of, of the world to win such a mandate. But, but in Singapore, the mood from the party after the election was quite somber. You know, they held this 5 a.m. press conference. The, the prime minister was saying how he wanted to win back voters, but he'd heard, you know, the, the, the demands for more uh, representation debate in, in, in parliament. And then he announced this move that, you know, that he would officially recognise the Workers' Party leader as the opposition, which I suppose kind of reinforces that, that they're kind of taking it, taking it seriously and showing the voting public that, 
they hear them, I suppose, and that they, they recognise that they want an opposition and they want to, they want debate. And and for you, John, um, you know, coming to Singapore, experiencing the, uh, your first election in Singapore, coming from uh, the UK, I'm guessing, what's really stood out for you? Well, I suppose it's it's going to be very difficult to compare this because you know one hopes that in 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 future elections we won't have to deal with some of the reporting restrictions that we kind of faced here. I mean. We talked a lot about, you know, what it was like for the voting public and the and the and the restrictions that were in place, but but also as journalists covering it, you know, the challenge was there were there were you know there was challenges for us in terms of there was rules laid out in where we could interview members of the public, you know, we weren't able to kind of physically attend you know press conferences and party gatherings that we might normally do, so just having you know access to to people was a little bit more challenging. They limited the number of media that could go to different media events as well, the ones that did happen. And then I suppose we also had to think about you know in some way that the kind of safety of our journalists as well, and you know that are out in the field. And I suppose every every media company in the world is is wrestling with this now. And you know you have to go through thinking about okay. Do we need to, how many people do we need to send out? Where should we station them? Do we want to send them to gatherings? I, I, there was a big kind of uh, a kind of spontaneous celebration amongst the opposition party um, after the result was announced in the early hours of uh, Saturday morning. J is for Johnny, A is for achievement, M is for mandate, U is for and we sent a reporter up there to, just to take a look around and, and, and get a few vox pops. And, uh, you know, she, she, she kind of had, had, had got what she needed and called back and said, you know, I think I'm going to, we've got what we need. I think I'm going to head back now because there was kind of large gatherings of people and it kind of felt a little bit uncomfortable. Mm. So, you know, the, the, just the, those kind of things that you don't think about as journalists are, are now kind of, you know, are, have become the norm. So I, I don't think in my career that I'll cover another election quite like this. Would it have made any difference if it was put off? You said that the, the government actually had until early next year to hold this election would it really have made any difference given that it looks like the world's going to be going through this pandemic for a long time yet? Again, it's a hypothetical, but we can we can look at where we are now, I suppose, and compare, you know, so we're like, uh, we're more than a month on now. And, you know, the, the, the cases um, in Singapore have dropped significantly. That's partly because of the nature of this uh, issue that I explained earlier, that so many of these are in these dormitories. Mm. Um, but even those cases that are in the, 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 the community outside of the dormitories, they're staying low uh, and, and have even dropped slightly. And w- the borders remain firmly closed in Singapore. So, of course, this virus can, can flare up at any time, as you've encountered you know, in, in New Zealand. I, I can't predict how it would have changed. And I suppose the the ruling party made the decision that, you know, we've just been in a lockdown. We've kind of got the, the cases at a level that we feel comfortable with. We don't necessarily know 
whether there'll be another window to hold this between now and April that will be better than this. Mm. So they took the decision to, 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 to go ahead with it. There were people who weren't able to vote because of the virus, but it was a relatively small number here. And as you mentioned, voting is compulsory. So even people who may have felt, and we did speak to people on election day who felt a little uneasy, you know, joining that long queue to go and cast their vote, they did it. Mm. Um, you, you wouldn't have had any change probably, or maybe very slightly at the margins on, on things like turnout. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's, it's hard to really say whether there was a better time to hold it. Working within what the government said was that they are, you know, that they were legally obliged to hold the election before next April. And the last word goes to this commentator about what's in store for the next election in Singapore. As important as manifestos and promises are, it cannot be denied that the likability of a candidate and their personalities are crucial. And that's where social media does its best work. Combined with large-scale rallies when COVID-19 eventually subsides, there is no doubt that GE 2025 is going to be one hell of a ride. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Jarman Jamison and John Getty. Mā te wā.